Good morning. Um, for some of you, this is an unfamiliar face up here. Peter is, I think, at a wedding in Florida, of all things. I think that's what he's doing. So he's not sloughing off. He's doing his duty, which gave me the opportunity to uh, share with you. I, and I have taught Matthew once before, at least once before, but it was a long time ago. So I've enjoyed the teaching that we've had for the last few weeks. Let's pray to begin. Father, unless your Holy Spirit reveals to us what your Word is saying and how we are to ingest and digest and process your Word, we will not understand what you're saying. So give us ears to hear, Lord, not what I'm saying, but what your Spirit is saying to us through the Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we saw in the past two weeks, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus had instructed the twelve uh, and sent them out to minister after telling them what to expect as they went. There were certain things they would expect, and that, uh, that was Jesus' sermon that Peter covered in the past two weeks in chapter 10. And then in verse 1 of chapter 11, we are told that Jesus went on from there to teach and preach alone in the cities of Galilee without the twelve. And as he was teaching, two disciples of John the Baptist, who was in prison, came to Jesus with John's big question. And I'm going to refer to this this morning as the big question. I think we'll find in that question questions we often have. Let's read verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. That's in Galilee. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, this is John. You, you ask him this question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What are we to do with our doubts? Jesus was preaching in the cities of Galilee, and he typically taught wherever he went. Here it says in the streets, but he preached in the country, he preached in synagogues, this was his normal practice, and there's several, there could be many references, and I've given you a few in the notes. And I apologize for the length of the notes. I really tried to make it within four pages, and I thought I had. <clears throat> I really thought I had, and I sent it to, I'm going to blame it on Evan. Where's Evan? I've got to blame him. <laughs> no. I thought I had, but I said, do your magic, Evan, and his magic turned out to be six pages, so... I just overestimate, underestimated what I was putting in the notes. But then 
Jesus was met in verses 2 and 3 here of chapter 11 with a question from John the Baptist in prison, sent by two of his disciples. And by the way, there's a parallel passage in Luke. I'm going to be, I probably won't be reading too much from it, but I want you to know it's there in Luke chapter 7. There's a parallel passage. So Luke gives us some more detail in some instances than Matthew does. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And having been languishing in prison for many months, John was wrestling with a weakness that countless others have had since John. I suspect some of them are in this room. In fact, I know one of them is in this room. Me. John was dealing with his own perplexity and doubt The perplexity disclosed by this question is the perplexity of a believer, a true child of God, a citizen headed for heaven, one of God's chosen ones. And as we look at John's question, let's remember who's asking the question. We will see, Jesus testified, John was the greatest man who had lived up to his time. Wow. What that tells me, among other lessons from our text, is that when my own doubts occur, I'm in pretty good company. John's condition was not new to Jesus. How often did Jesus say to his disciples, oh, you have little faith, how long will you doubt? You can find it, I give you Matthew 8, 26, Luke 12, 28, it it occurs other places as well. So our questions arise. Does the Lord understand our doubts? Does he condemn our doubts? Is he pleased with our doubts? I trust we're going to have some answers by the time we finish this morning, and you need to come to those conclusions as the Holy Spirit gives it to you because it may depend on your doubt. By this time in the ministry of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist had already announced Jesus' coming As the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he had announced him as the Messiah, the one who was to come. John had baptized Jesus in the Jordan, somewhat reluctantly, but he had. He had seen the Spirit of God on that instance descending like a dove and resting on Jesus. He had experienced the heavens open on that occasion. He had heard John's voice, God's voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then John had been put in prison by Herod Antipas for denouncing Herod's adulterous relationship with Herodias, the wife of Herod Antipas' brother, Philip. We find that in Matthew 14. So now, John was perplexed, having been in the dungeon for months And he sends this question to Jesus, are you the one? This event, this, this series of events are recorded by both Matthew and Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a purpose. What will we learn about the circumstances of John's mind and heart from his perplexed question? Should we conclude that John had no faith? Did he still believe Jesus was Messiah, the Lord? Have you ever had a cloud of doubt hover over your assurance of your relationship with Jesus? Do you think John here was asking for information? Or was he instead asking for confirmation? 
I think we can tell from all that is said about John that he was seeking confirmation, that he believed. But like the man who spoke to Jesus in Mark 9, 24, John was essentially saying, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. For some time, a number of John the Baptist's disciples had been observing. We can, when you read all of Scripture, you put this together. They'd have been observing Jesus' ministry. And they had access to John. So they were observing Jesus' ministry. They were then going to John from time to time and telling him what was going on. Earlier in in, uh, Matthew's gospel, we see recorded a banquet. Apparently at Matthew's house, if we put all of Scripture together, attended by other tax collectors. Matthew was a tax collector. By other tax collectors and other sinners. The scripture tells us, and John's disciples observed the event and asked, why do we and the, and the Pharisees, they were putting themselves, John's disciples, in the category of the Pharisees, which is, is okay. They were religious people, duty-bound people. They were following the letter of the instructions they had. Why do we fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's recorded in Matthew 9, 14. And then, after Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain from the dead, we see John's disciples reporting the Nain resurrection miracle to John the Baptist. And in fact, Luke's gospel records that this report prompted John to send two of them to Jesus and asking Jesus our big question. Are you the one? You'll find that in Luke chapter 7 verses 11 through 19. We can see that John's disciples had access to John while he was in Herod's prison. And John was perplexed, wondering, and wanting confirmation of what he had believed by faith about Jesus. Let me insert this observation. I I could spend a long time talking about this, but I won't. But I, I want you really to let this get established in your mind. When we read accounts like this in Scripture... These are real events that took place at specific places and times in history. These are real events, real people, flesh and blood. Let's not mythologize these accounts or these people. Uh, Maybe I'm preaching to the choir about that this morning, but I think we all too often just are tempted to read these stories and see these stories and treat them as though they're just some kind of fable. They're not. These things happened. And it helps us to understand what the Holy Spirit is doing if we, we make sure we're thinking of this when we're meditating on what's being said. After being in prison for many months, unable to preach or have contact freely with the outside world except through these prison visits by his disciples, John was plagued with doubts and misgivings about Jesus, the one he had announced, baptized, and declared to be the Christ. The question... Are you the one who is to come was a common way, by the way, the one who is to come to refer to the Messiah. Psalm 47, other passages of Scripture make this clear. Now, should we be encouraged or discouraged to learn that John the Baptist was subject to doubt? Personally, I'm encouraged by learning this about this great man. Let's explore at least some of the potential reasons for John's doubts that are expressed by this question, are you the one? And the reason we're doing this is to see if maybe sometimes these same kinds of circumstances 
affect us. First, difficult circumstances. Consider, humanly speaking, what had happened to John's career as a preacher. Think about it. He's a real man with a real call on his life. From a human perspective, his career was down the tubes, an unmitigated disaster. John had been a fiery, independent, dramatic, confrontational, courageous man who preached without fear whatsoever to whomever and whenever the truth needed to be preached. He called sin, sin. He called sinners, sinners. And now he was in prison for his faithfulness. Herod Antipas had taken his brother Philip's wife, divorced his own wife, after he had begun an adulterous affair with Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. John confronted Herod about his sin, and it was only, we learn from Scripture, his personal, John's personal popularity with the people that kept him from instant execution. The historian Josephus tells us that John was in prison at a place, and I probably mispronounce it, Macarus, a dungeon out in the desert by the Dead Sea. Really, a pit. After months in the limelight, this man of the outdoors, John the Baptist, had been thrown into a pit where he'd been confined for probably more than a year when he sent his disciples to Jesus with our big question, are you the one? John was a believer. John was a prophet. John was a holy man, set apart to God, loyal, selfless, and unreserved in his role as a servant. He had done what God had told him to do. John was filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told in Scripture, from before his birth. He lived as a Nazarite, dedicated to self-denial. But now he wondered if prison, shame, hunger, physical torment, confusion, and loneliness were his reward. Or faithfulness. John the Baptist knew the Old Testament well, no doubt, including the promises of comfort in Psalm 119.50 and Isaiah 51.12. He knew the promises about the Messiah, including this key passage which is repeated over and over in this event, the scripture's recording of this event. Isaiah 61.1 through 3 says, Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isaiah 61. So here, we, here are questions that are likely to have been rolling around through John's mind in that dungeon, remembering real flesh and blood locked in a dungeon. If Jesus is the one who is to come, the Messiah... Why did he let his servant, his forerunner, continue to suffer in prison? Where was God's love, God's compassion, God's justice for John? Where were the promises of Isaiah 61 that we just read? 
Do these kind of questions sound familiar to you and me? When a child of God has faithfully, sometimes sacrificially served the Lord for years and then experiences tragedy, sometimes multiple tragedies, is it not common to have these kinds of questions? These questions proliferate in the Psalms. This week as I was reading through various Psalms, I see them over and over again. When the child of a believer is lost in death or is seemingly lost to unbelief, when a husband dies or a wife dies or leaves her family or when, a, or when cancer strikes and takes a loved one, we are tempted to ask, why, God? Why? God, where are you now when I really need you? Why have you let this happen? Why don't you help? Are you the one? Second potential cause, and I believe was a cause for John's perplexity, is incomplete revelation. This was a second major cause, and it can be ours as well. John the Baptist had heard what Jesus was doing, but he wasn't an eyewitness. Even though eyewitnesses, by the way, have doubts. We know that from looking at the accounts of the apostles after Jesus' crucifixion. Peter, James, and John had personally seen the miracles. They had been on the mountain when the God of heaven revealed himself in the transfiguration. John the Baptist was in the same position, really, as the Old Testament prophets. They had experienced but had not seen the Lord minister and perform miraculous acts. What what John's disciples brought back to John's dungeon were their own observations, but John had not personally seen these confirming demonstrations of God's power at work in Jesus. Many people today doubt God's truth because of incomplete information. With little or no knowledge of God's Word in Scripture, the more we are bathed in Scripture, the less reason we will have for stumbling and perplexity. When God speaks to us through His Word, our doubts fade and disappear. Faith comes from hearing and ingesting the Word preached, taught, and read. Remember the experiences of the disciples after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story. When unbeknownst to them, Jesus came alongside and explained what had happened in Jerusalem from God's Word. Part of this conversation is recorded in Luke 24, verse 27. And it says, this is what they, uh, what is written there, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And later, as he walked along and they said, well, come on and eat with us. And he sat down to eat. And when he revealed himself to them, he disappeared. You remember the story? They exclaimed, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Verse 32, chapter 24 of Luke. Listen carefully to what those disciples said. Even before they knew who he was, when he opened the scriptures, their doubts began to disappear. We all need, we all must have the continual truth from God's word to protect us from doubt. And to dispel doubt when it inevitably comes, as it will. We need God's word. 
The third major factor in John's perplexity or doubt with worldly influences. The, and we can't, there's no way to completely avoid these today or then. What Jesus was preaching and teaching and doing did not completely square up with what most Jews of his day and time thought the Messiah would say and do. John the Baptist must have shared some of these misconceptions or lack of understanding about what the Messiah was going to be about. In the early first century, it was pretty clear that many religious, devout Jews believed that the Messiah would free them from Rome. How could the Messiah, in their minds, establish his own kingdom with justice and righteousness as had been foretold by the prophets? How could he do that without first dealing with their pagan oppressors from Rome? But Jesus had not said or done anything observable to oppose the Roman government. In fact, he sat down at a banquet with some of their representatives. He healed the centurion's daughter. The Jews also thought that Messiah would eliminate all suffering, all disease, affliction, hunger, and pain. And they had basis for that reading from the prophets. But even the miracles that Jesus did perform did not fully accomplish those goals. What they want, they wanted a king. John 6, 15 tells us he evaded them because he knew they wanted a king. They wanted him to be king. They were looking for a divine welfare state. John was certainly an observer of the culture in Israel. He was bathed in it just as we are bathed in the culture that we swim in here. He knew Jesus refused to be king and that Jesus had done nothing to change Rome's corrupt polytheistic, polytheistic system, that sin, even religious sin, was still rampant, that injustice still abounded, that political and religious corruption was still rampant, and that no visible kingdom or cultural changes had taken place. Add to that, if you're John, flesh and blood John, he's still in prison. A common misconception was that there would be many forerunners to the true Messiah and even false messiahs. So perhaps John's temptation was to believe that Jesus was one of those, not the true Messiah. Remember Jesus' question to his disciples recorded in Matthew 16, 13? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Many answers were given before Simon Peter gave the correct response. These misconceptions persisted even after the resurrection. We see it in Acts 1.6 when his disciples gathered to see Jesus ascend into heaven. They asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus had repeatedly taught them the truth, yet they would show their misunderstandings like Philip did, recorded in John 14 when he said, Lord, show us the Father which resulted in Jesus' response in verse 9 of chapter 14, Have I been with you so long and you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Peter misunderstood. Even after he declared that Jesus was the Christ, really shortly recorded thereafter, when Jesus plainly told the disciples that he was to suffer and die, Peter took him aside. You remember the story? took him aside in Matthew 16, 22, and 23, and insisted, Jesus, you're not going to die. And Jesus' response was what? 
Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. The disciples routinely failed to understand Jesus' message about himself and the core of the gospel because of their preconceived ideas, worldly influences, the culture they lived in, the religious culture they lived in. And this isn't very different today. People, including believers, are confused and perplexed about the sovereign plan of God. We become so influenced by the world's ideas, even though we don't want to be, that we often fail to understand God's plan, even when we read it in Scripture. John MacArthur's commentary on Matthew captured these questions that still persist. I quote it there. I'm going to, you read it. It raises all these questions. Because God doesn't fit their own ideas. People are confused, sometimes indignant, and even blasphemous at times. And see, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, we've got to have the Holy Spirit. We've got to be bathed in the Word in order to avoid, as best we can, these doubts that come upon us because of worldly influences. And I won't... I won't go tracking off on to the prosperity gospel or all that stuff, but some of that stuff may be running through your mind. It is mine. We can easily be deceived and easily have doubts about God. Are you the one? And fourth, and this kind of collapses a lot of these major reason for John's doubt were unfulfilled expectations. We have flirted around with this in these first three major reasons for John's doubt and ours. But the fourth major reason for John's doubt and our own doubts is often this one. There's a wonderful book about marriage. This is totally unrelated, but it just came to my mind as I was thinking about this. uh, Written by John Tripp, entitled, What Did You Expect? It's a wonderful marriage book. And for those married couples here, I commend you to read it. In that book, Pastor Tripp exposes one of the major reasons for marriage difficulties. Wrong expectations. They don't understand what God's Word says marriage is about. The same is true in our relationship with the Almighty God and His sovereign, perfect plan. John's question, are you the one, implies that his own expectations of the Messiah were unfulfilled. John spoke true words in John 3 versus John the Baptist spoke true words when it's recorded in the third chapter of John verses 11 and 12. But he misunderstood even what was meant by those Holy Spirit inspired words. John had declared, John the Baptist, just after Jesus, just before Jesus came to be baptized, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable, unquenchable fire. Praise God, that was and still is the truth. But John's expectations for the timing of those events of judgment were different than God's timing. And God's means were different than John's expectations of means. Instead of the means John probably expected, Jesus took 12 nobodies and made fishermen and tax collectors and others and made them apostles and then started teaching them 
John was seeing no divine intervention, no fires of judgment on the wicked, and so it was still hard to understand how the godly suffer and the wicked prosper. Another writer has captured how John's unfulfilled expectations might have contributed to his doubt. Let me just share it. It's in your notes, uh, but I want to emphasize some things as I read it. I thought this was very, this got to me, so hopefully it will to you. John knew from Scripture that he who gave the blind sight, made the lame walk, and preached good news to the poor could surely open the prison to those who are bound as prophesied in Isaiah 61.1. But Jesus didn't do that for John. So perhaps at this point, let me interject right here. We pray for healing and someone's not healed. If that hasn't come to your mind, it has mine. I've prayed for a lot of people for healing. Some of them have been healed. Some of them have not. I've prayed for the salvation of friends. Some of them are still wandering. So perhaps at this point, John doubted what he knew. If Jesus was indeed the Messiah, John probably expected to have a role in his earthly kingdom. He wouldn't have expected to start with such a high calling, preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness, only to end his life and his ministry in a small prison cell. Besides, John preached what the Messiah, that the Messiah would come with an unquenchable fire, with judgment, with power. He likely expected that to be in his lifetime. For now, John has to accept the Messiah's plans for his life, plans that are different than what he envisioned. He has to dwell on what he knows to be true rather than fixate on his circumstances. He has to remember who God is and trust him from a dark prison. And the writer, Ms. Risner, says, When my plans crumble and God takes me away from my dreams, I must trust in God's infinite wisdom. When my cup of suffering seems too much to bear. I need to rest in his immeasurable love. When my life spins out of control, I need to remember God's absolute sovereignty. So how did Jesus respond? With reassurance? That's how he responded. He didn't condemn John. We can see from the parallel passage in Luke's gospel and in verses 5 and 6 here in Matthew 11, there was no simple yes or no to John's question. He could have just said yes or no. But it was answered just in the way John would understand it. Special confirming miracles. And then a charge to John's disciples, go and tell John what you hear and see. And this is where it's good to read scripture together because Luke's parallel account about what happened when John's disciples came with John's big question gives us an even bigger picture of how Jesus responded. Not only did Jesus tell them to tell John what they saw and heard, but in Luke 7, verses 21 and 22, those verses tell us that in that hour, with those two disciples still there, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. In that context, Jesus answered the question telling John's disciples, now go tell John what you have seen and heard. And then in amazing love, Jesus quoted from the passage we read early in this lesson. Isaiah 61, tell John that blind see, lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead raised, and the poor hear the good news. And notice 
John, Jesus does not include the opening for prison to those who are bound. He's quoting from Isaiah 61, but he doesn't include that. One writer has said, and this touched me when I read it, and I agree with this insight. Out of love for his friend, Jesus didn't include Isaiah's phrase, proclaim liberty to the captives. John would understand. John's circumstances didn't improve. Soon he would be beheaded at the demand of the evil adulterous Herodias. But I think scripture evidences that John's confidence and trust were renewed. Verse 6 concludes with, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We can surely believe that Jesus' answer confirmed John's faith and dispelled his doubts. Why? Because when John was beheaded, where did his disciples go immediately? They went to Jesus. That was the first person they reported to. When John was beheaded, he went, they went to Jesus to report because Jesus was the most important person in John's life. Before John died, he did not have all his questions answered. He must still have wondered, kingdom? Judgment? But we learn that even when we doubt, Jesus is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 and 1 John 3, 2 and 3 and other passages tell us. If we dwell on and wallow in our questions, Satan builds them up to undermine our trust in God. You and I are vulnerable just like John to doubt. John had questions in his difficult circumstances and he knew, knew where to go with those doubts. He couldn't personally go. He was in prison. But he sent his friends to Jesus with his doubts. And we see Jesus responding with love and mercy. We need to deal with our doubts just like John did. Go to Jesus. Pour them out before him. Let him minister by the Holy Spirit. Remembering what James has to say about fiery trials in James chapter 1 verses 2 through 12. The trials have good purposes and they bring glory to God. And that passage, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. When we doubt, and we will, let us learn to follow John's example. Take them to our Lord. The second part of our passage that we're covering this morning, and we're going to finish. I mean, you may be a little late, but we're going to finish. What are God's measures of greatness? Let me read, beginning with verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began, as they, the two disciples, were going back to report to John. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, Jesus speaking, 
I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We're going to come back to that. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The world has many standards by which it measures greatness. Intellectual achievement, political leadership skills, military leadership abilities, medical or scientific discoveries, wealth, power, athletic skill, musical gifting, many other measures of greatness. Here in our text, Jesus gives us a person as a standard for greatness. John the Baptist. Then Jesus makes this astounding statement. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In our text, we have three indicia of greatness that describe John the Baptist. His personal character, his personal calling, and his personal confrontational conflict. First, let's talk about his character. And there are three aspects that we see disclosed here if we read carefully about John's personal God-given and God-empowered character. John's greatness of character was evidenced when he declared himself, we read it earlier, unworthy to carry Jesus' sandals. He was preaching to crowds, you know, huge crowds. Religious leaders were flocking there to see what this strange man out in the desert had to say. This greatness is also, but, but he says, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. It's also demonstrated by what we learned and discussed in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter. This was the doubter, John. John's question, are you the one, demonstrates the way he dealt with his weakness and speaks volumes about his character. And I don't want us to miss this. Because, well, maybe this is just for me this morning, this piece. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. He had been set apart by God for a special purpose. He had publicly recognized Jesus as Messiah. He had great popularity with the people, what a, with a tremendous ministry. In Herod's prison, his doubt emerged, but John humbled himself, admitted his doubts to his own disciples, and asked them to go to Jesus with his doubts. Now, you know, it's easy. In, it's much easier, I think, let me say this, for me in my, in my private prayer to say, Lord, I'm having struggles with this and I'm, I'm doubt, this has caused me great conflict and just talk to the Lord, you know, one-on-one. I can, I can do that. Now, if I'm sincere, it still should have the same effect. But John couldn't go directly, quietly in a closet to the Lord because his Lord, Jesus, was physically there present and he was in prison and he couldn't. So what did he do? How did he handle this? Instead of protecting himself and his reputation by hiding his doubts, he admitted his doubts and set out to learn the truth. John's transparency about his weakness evidences his humble, the humility of his character. There's a lesson and a challenge here for you and for me. In John's shoes, what would we do? We all have internal struggles and weaknesses in our positions, wherever they are, of leadership, 
in our homes, in the church, in our families, on our jobs, do we readily admit our weaknesses to close friends? Is that something you do easily? That's a challenge for me. But true greatness pushes through the problems to find solutions by going to God and God's people with those problems. Pride is a curse to true greatness. If we proudly refuse to admit to and deal with personal weakness, we are doomed to mediocrity or hypocrisy. John the Baptist's own words in John 3, 29 and 30 says, Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Those words... John Bloom wrote this in his Iron God blog. The, those words that I just read from John 3.29, as much as anything John ever said, reveal the heart that made him so great. He understood what his life was about, Jesus. The beginning of his ministry was about Jesus, and even more so, its end. John's humility is all the more striking because of a second character trait that Jesus highlighted in our text. It's obvious that John was a person of strong, not weak, convictions. His preaching, now, you know, if you have strong convictions about something, then it's really hard to admit your weakness to a friend. Yeah, I really have strong convictions, but I'm struggling too. That's hard. And that was John. He was a person of strong convictions. His preaching had been confident and bold. It was not a what-if message, as we can see by Jesus' description in verses 7 and 8 here. It's also clear that crowds following Jesus must have heard and wondered. They were there. It was all in a big group. He was preaching in the streets, and these two guys come up and start asking questions. The crowds following Jesus must have heard and wondered about John's question, are you the one? And Jesus set the record straight about John. Those who were with Jesus that day would have known who John the Baptist was, and it would seem that Jesus wanted to answer their unspoken questions. Did John, the bold prophet who proclaimed Jesus as Messiah, have doubts about what he had proclaimed? Was John's message unreliable? Was John not trustworthy? So Jesus, in verses 7 through 9, set out to answer those questions. John was not like those reeds along the Jordan River that would sway back and forth flexibly when the wind blew. Jesus was saying, in effect, did you ever hear John change or compromise his message? That's what Jesus was saying to the crowd. John was not uncertain and vacillating. He was not double-minded. John had spoken truth to religious power and authority. John had spoken truth to political power, Herod Antipas, and that's why he was seized and imprisoned. So Jesus wanted those listening that day, real event, real time, real place, real people. He wanted them, and he wanted you and I to know that despite John's doubts, John was a faith-filled, Holy Spirit-empowered and motivated man. John was humble, and John was a man of strong convictions. John was also a man who epitomized self-denial. I mean, he even illustrated it the way he dressed. And Jesus colorfully lets us know of John's self-denial with a question to the crowd. What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothes? Great people live lives of self-denial, putting the interests of their mission and their calling before their own comfort and ease. Great military leaders lead from the front 
great athletes train themselves to the point of exhaustion in order to attain the goal of peak fitness for their sport. And Jesus was saying this about John. He didn't care about having fine clothes or living in soft surroundings. He cared primarily about preaching repentance and declaring the one who was to come. Great missionaries to foreign lands give up comfort for souls. Sometimes they're called to give up more than comfort. So it was with John. But John's self-denial was to fulfill his calling, not to earn meritorious brownie points for asceticism. We could enumerate many examples, if you go through history, and many examples of misguided asceticism in church history. That wasn't John. He wasn't doing this just to be an ascetic. He just had one goal, one mission, and he was about it, and the rest was superfluous to him. He could care less. His personal character traits of humility, strong convictions, and self-denial for the purpose of God's calling on his life are character traits all of us should have and should cultivate by the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> John had a personal, special calling. An angel had appeared to John's father, Zechariah, who was a priest in the temple, before John's birth to predict that John would take the Nazarite vow of self-denial for his entire life as part of his equipping for the calling and mission given him to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's in Luke 1, 16 and 17, but it also, those words appear somewhere else. Malachi. John was chosen to announce and prepare the way for the Messiah, Son of God, King of Kings. John was on God's mission, a special mission and a prophetic mission. Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet before John, had predicted this man, John, who would come in the spirit of Elijah, Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Jesus would later confirm that Malachi was referring to John the Baptist. You see this in Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13. Jesus confirmed that Malachi's prophecy was about John the Baptist. John had been called to a high and privileged task. And Jesus asked the crowd, which included John's disciples and those who had, out of curiosity, gone out to see John in the wilderness, who did you come to see? A prophet? Of course, the answer for those who were not skeptics was yes. The prophetic office began with Moses and extended through the Babylonian captivity and exile down to Malachi. And then there had been no prophet for 400 years in Israel until John. He had, he's been called by some commentators the valedictorian of prophets the most articulate, confrontational, and powerful spokesman that God had ever called for the most important task there could be, the most important task that could be, to announce God's provision for the restoration of what had been lost in the Garden of Eden. John would declare God's son, the perfect lamb who would who would and did take away the sins of God's called out ones. The earlier prophets could only say the Messiah is coming. John could say, the Messiah is here. He's arrived. Jesus assured the crowd and the two disciples from John that John was more than a prophet by quoting from Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger before you 
John was both a prophet and a fulfillment of prophecy. Each of us who name Jesus Christ as Lord have a primary calling. I was led to go back to read from a book that I had read a number of years ago. I commend it to you highly by Oz Guinness called The Calling, or The Call. And this is Guinness's definition of, our pri- of all of our primary calling. Calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, everything we have is invested with a special devotion, dynamism, and direction lived out as a response to his summons and service. That is every believer's primary calling. But in addition... Each of us has been given secondary callings. Sometimes they are special callings, such as what John the Baptist experienced. We must not fall into the trap of despising whatever secondary callings God has given us. And we must not fall into the trap as a believer of thinking that our secondary callings are not important. Remember 1 Corinthians 12 verses 14 through 25. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but verse 22 tells us the parts of the body of Christ that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Let us find our part and fill our part. Our part may change from time to time. God is the caller and we are the called. We have a primary calling and we have secondary callings. Sometimes we'll have special callings and we'll know when we have them. God will let us know. But whatever our calling is, we need to do it unto the Lord and we need to understand that it's indispensable. We've got a part to fulfill in the body and if we're not doing it, we should be. True greatness is a per, in a person like John means that God has matched the right person to the right position. You can look around in this, in this local assembly and you can see people who are in the right position. You just can see it. May that be each of us. Because God does the placing. God does the calling. Can you imagine the privilege of John's calling to announce and then baptize the Messiah? And then Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Full stop. No one greater. Add up all the great people of faith in the Old Testament. Abraham, Moses, Samuel, David, all the prophets, all the Old Testament men and women of faith mentioned in chapter 11 of Hebrews. And Jesus was saying, None of them were as great as this man, John the Baptist. Wow. This was the man who asked, are you the one? Or do we look for another? No person greater than this doubter. I hope that's an encouragement to you as it is to me. But then we must reconcile that remarkable statement with what Jesus says next in the second half of verse 11. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does that mean? That would include even me. What does that say about you who have by grace become part of the kingdom of heaven? The new covenant sealed by Jesus' own blood, resurrection, ascension, and and recipients of the Holy Spirit are kingdom dwellers described here by Jesus. 
those who are in Christ are still greater than this great man, John the Baptist. In the spiritual dimension, you and I are greater as we trust Jesus Christ than was John the Baptist. Matthew Henry, if you can get past his old English, you understand this. Put it, and I put this quote in your notes. John came at the dawning of the gospel day and therefore excelled the foregoing prophets, but he was taken off before the noon of that day, before the rending of the veil, before Christ's death and resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit. All the true greatness of men and women is derived from and denominated by the gracious manifestation of Christ to them. What reason have we to be thankful that our lot is cast in the days of the kingdom of heaven under such advantages of light and life? And the third measure of greatness that we see here about this man John, found in verses 12 through 14, most if not all people who attain to true greatness in the Lord will only do so through what I call a baptism of fire. And I'm not talking about spirit baptism here, although that could be included. Each of us, I suspect, if we're children of God, will face our own baptisms of fire that God ordains for us in the form of confrontation and conflict. When you look back at the great people of faith in God's word in human history, and I suspect in your own experiences, I believe you will find that greatness involves some form of confrontation and conflict. I don't mean they went out looking for a fight. Some did, some didn't. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean the fight was and is and will be there when we are people of character committed to our primary calling, committed to those callings that God puts on our hearts. Without this mark, this point of reference in our lives, we do not have the opportunity to reach our potential greatness. For some, it might be a fight with cancer. For some, it might be a, a difficult relationship. For others, it might be not having a job. But so it was with John. John entered human history at a critical juncture. God's chosen people, Israel, were at such a time. Israel was expectant. John was the focal point, the focal point, the fulcrum, the little edge upon which the whole thing swings. He was at that focal point in God's redemptive history announcing the one who was called to restore all things and reconcile God and man. John generated conflict and confrontation, and we can see why. The message John was called to proclaim and the person he was called to announce would upset the status quo completely. The call to repentance disturbed people from the top to the bottom of society. Everywhere John went, there was reaction often violent reaction, culminating in his arrest, imprisonment, and ultimately his beheading at the whim of an adulterous Herodias. For about 18 months, God's kingdom had been forcefully advancing against all odds, and forceful men and women laid hold of it. John's preaching led many to the Lord of glory. Following Jesus demands effort, not passivity. To be a Christian, a Christ follower in the first century, 
today and in every century in between means to swim against the flow of the world, to go against the grain. This is because Satan and his demons and the world system are powerful. Those who enter the kingdom through faith are doing so under the superior and unprecedented power of the Holy Spirit, God himself indwelling. Everything that went before pointed to John, who pointed to Jesus. John was great, but those who are in Christ are even greater because God is greater. Do we have ears to hear? Father, please impress us with what you were saying to the church and to us through this passage. May we not despise our second callings. Lord, may we embrace them knowing that we too are indispensable and that your son has declared that we as children of the kingdom of God today are greater than this great man. But Lord, let us emulate his character as well by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.